0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, uh, as always, the man who puts the game in Endgame, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. How are you today, mate? I am alive and kicking. I don't want to take it any further than that. I figured that's about the level I'm at this morning. But uh, we have a fantastic guest joining us shortly.
1: Yes, I think we've been quite fortunate in uh, our timing of talking to him. And uh, I, for one, can't wait. So why don't we dive in?
0: Yes, joining us now is Jem Kassam of uh, Kai Volatility. Jem is um, a prolific tweeter, although less prolific than he used to be, under the Twitter handle at JamCroissant. Croissant, Jem underscore croissant, I should say. And we are going to delve into the world of volatility with him because there are few people out there who cover it uh, in such depth on Twitter. And so Bill and I thought this was a very good time to have a chance to chat with him about all things volatility. So let's dive in. Jim, welcome to The end Game. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've been dancing around, the three of us, trying to get this lined up. And I'm delighted we finally got it in the books. So much going on. And uh I know Fleck has a question. He's been dying to ask you for a few days now. So I'm going to let you kick off with that, Fleck.
1: Okay. Well, just so you know, Vanna White asked me to ask you this, all right? <laughs> you recently had a post where you said uh you thought the, the Fed would change its inflation target to I think it was something on the order of 5%. I can't remember exactly. And I couldn't tell whether you were being tongue in cheek or that's what you really thought. And given as that's about one of the more controversial topics that we could get to, and I think very few people think the Fed's going to budge, I'd love to draw
2: you out on whether you're not, that was for real or you're just goofing off. That was a response to Harold Baumgren, uh, Pippa's father, uh, who's been uh, you know uh, around policy circles for a long time. He mentioned that he thought, uh, you know, uh, you know, coming soon in the next several months, we'd see the Fed uh, bump its inflation target uh, up to 3% or so. And my response was, yeah, in the next couple of months, uh, I could very much not only see that happening, but I could see over the next several years, I think mean, that's the important part, them uh, having to to move it up to to 4%, 5%. Um, uh, like I actually said, 5 to 10 The point being is 5% plus. Um, look uh my thesis I, I wrote a uh, you know a newsletter several like three months ago talking about kind of structural inflation and uh how you know how it's why it is uh likely to be a part of what we're seeing now my broad view is that uh, that we're making you know inflation is as structural uh because of of populism primarily uh you know our Gini coefficients uh reached 0 point41. In the recent kind of forty-year monetary policy cycle, uh, the labor class, which is primarily the younger class—millennials uh, on down—is coming to political power, and uh, they've been—they've uh, grown up during a time of, of of increasing inequality. For them, they haven't had the assets like baby boomers had to benefit from the wealth effect. And uh, they have seen the system as broadly unfair for them. And they are now uh, voting and moving um, uh, politics to a populist direction. That's what Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both represent. They're both populist. And uh, this started about a decade ago and slowly has been building as they've come to age. Um, You know, it started with uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party. Those were populist movements. But no, they didn't have the gravitas and the pull politically to, to move the needle until uh, somebody named Donald Trump uh, actually came out and saw the benefit that this populist movement and said, look, I'm going to start uh, taking the right a bit left because that's popular, rusted out cities in middle America, right? Uh, the protectionism, all those things is populist. And again, the left went even further left and Bernie Sanders, AOC, All you know, they're just different brands of the same populist rhetoric. And so all of that has moved policy and, and COVID was the spark. And that's why we've had, you know, the $9 trillion or so of fiscal policy order of magnitude more than we've ever seen in real terms. And so we've seen all that and we've seen the inflationary push that comes with it. History is uh, we've seen many examples of this throughout history. The most recent 1960s and 70s with the Great Society program, right? All of the um, the focus on on uh, programs to, to fix uh, equality. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of knock-on effects, which we can get into. I don't want to lay it all out here in, the, in, in my opening monologue, but, but there's, a, there's a lot of other knock-on effects. This leads to protectionism, uh, more uh, a competition game globally as opposed to a co- uh, cooperation game, which ultimately drives more and more. Uh, secular inflation. So if I believe that, and I believe we're in the 60s and 70s type model, uh, there's a lot of uh, things that come out of that, right? And one is secularly higher interest rates on a structural level. You can have cyclical downturns along the way, much like they did in the 60s and 70s. We're likely to get a cyclical downturn. All everybody's talking about is that cyclical piece and not really focused on the structural big picture. Um, And so my view is that the Fed will be forced to accordingly raise their target for inflation higher. Because if you can't meet your targets, uh, then you got to change them. There's no, (laughs) that's the only real solution. And, And that's the game the Fed will end up playing, I believe.
1: Obviously, you're postulating about how this could play out. What would you think would need to be a catalyst for them to try to pull that page out of the playbook? Would it be related to economic weakness, but yet inflation hadn't come down enough? Or could it be you know something on the treasury side because obviously the budget deficit and the interest on it have exploded Do, have you given any thought to that or are you just going to going to see how it develops
2: no i mean uh, absolutely i think uh, we're we're heading down a road where uh where the fed is likely to start losing control of the long end of the curve uh, they're broadly their their narrative of of transitory inflation right uh didn't work out yet the long end of the curve uh, still has be- believed that the Fed, which has been successful the last 40 years and constantly kind of controlling the market, right, um, has has kind of threatened uh, a Volcker moment. So the, the long end of the curve for a while actually believed this and kind of, uh, you know, came back down, right? And there, and there were a lot of talks of, uh, of the 10-year going back to one and a half when it was at three, right? Right. Uh, We are we have that now seen that go go up to to four and a quarter four and a half uh, and settle in here at a much higher level. Um, We're likely to see that continue even if we go into a recession, even if we see the slowdown, which we're seeing right in the data in the short term. um, You know that slowdown on on uh, you know relative to structural inflation. Uh, is is like we're likely to see the, the tenure continue to work its way higher, even if if we get a, a short term recession. In my view, um, and again, you'll have pullbacks along the way. But the point is understanding this difference between cyclical inflation and structural. Right? We had two major recessions in the '60s, uh, late '60s, early uh, mid '70s. Right? Uh, the first one was called caused by William McChesney Martin, uh, you know, raising rates to counter inflation in the late '60s. Uh, that was a shallow one because that mm-hmm. was such a demand push uh, economy. GDP uh, only kind of uh, pulled back based on basic base, base effects uh, really during that period. But then uh, you know even though William McChesney e. Martin took rates from uh, from zero you know two two percent or so up to seven and a half percent and dramatically increased the Fed funds rate uh, and took real rates uh, you know positive which we haven't even done yet right we haven't right. even taken real rates positive. Uh, you know, they eventually pivoted, uh, paused and then pivoted at seven and a half percent, which, uh, by the way, you know, we're we're looking at 10 year four and at a half. And everybody's, you know, and and, uh, and Fed funds at, at, you know, foreign change and and everybody's already thinking, wow, they couldn't possibly go further than this. But seven and a half percent and then eventually pivoted once we were in recession, a shallow one. Um, and then inflation went back to 10 and a half, 12 and eventually a lot higher, which then forced Arthur Burns to take rates back from uh, four, three and a half, 4 a half, four 4 percent all the way to 10 and a half percent. Uh, again, everybody talks about Arthur Burns like he was uh, right uh, asleep at the wheel, right? Um, he raised the Fed funds rate to, rate to 10 and a half percent. Imagine if our Fed did that, right? Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're talking about Powell as Volcker, right? But, you know, but yet we're talking about a four and change Fed funds rate being like almost unthinkable or 5%, you know, almost unthinkable. So um, point is, and then, uh, you know, we got the biggest recession uh, after Arthur Burns did that uh, since the great depression Uh, and 74 and 75 was a massive recession and it was very painful. And not surprisingly, the fed pivoted um, because there's a a political dynamic to all this, right? Um, If we had a really, really bad recession, uh, the the fed can talk tough all they want at some point they're going to pivot. Um, And, uh, and so, uh, you know, Ultimately, that that took uh, inflation all the way up to fifteen percent plus, and rates and then Volcker had to come in mm-hmm. the late eighties. So, point is, there was cyclical periods of slowing of inflation during those caused by the Fed uh, kind of trying to drop demand as much as they could, but. But ultimately, there was structural inflation underneath. And if anything, I would argue, and we can get into this a bit later, that the Fed actually exacerbated that structural inflation by trying to limit cyclical inflation. And there's there's lots of reasons that that works that way. My point is the system is more complicated than just inflation up or inflation down. Uh, you know, it, it's it's more complicated than are we going to? Oh, inflation is slowing. CPI is coming down. Right, so. We're, we've reached the end of the cycle. No, no, that's not the way it works. Uh, you know, there, there are structural elements and there are short-term cyclical elements and, and understanding how they interact and how the Fed's role within that picture is an, is, is an important takeaway.
0: Jim, I, th- I think that's all absolutely correct. I agree with every word of that. The, the only thing that I'm curious about and trying to think all this through, because, you know, history is certainly rhyming, if not repeating, with the period you point out in the 60s and 70s. The big difference, obviously, is the structural balance sheet, let's call it, of the United States and the sheer amount of debt. We we now have a, si- a situation where, you know, you talked about well, 10.5% rates were unthinkable now. They're not just unthinkable, they're unworkable and unsustainable, right? Because of the amount of tax receipts that would take up to finance the, the existing debt. You know, we are in this position now where instead of 35% debt to GDP, we have 97% debt to GDP. And that makes a huge difference in what the Fed can and can't do in terms of fighting this And when you look at this idea of them being unable to meet their targets or changing their targets, which I agree makes all the sense in the world, we unfortunately live in a world where you have to construct a narrative around that. You know, they were unable to meet their 2% target for a couple of decades. They didn't move that target because it suited them to have asset price inflation and low CPI inflation. And whether you you believe it or not is, is irrelevant. Let's put that aside. So given those constraints, given the constraints of the financial health of the United States and other countries, or let's use the United States as an example, because they're all as bad as each other. How do you create a narrative around the changes you're going to have to make to targets and the damage it will undoubtedly do to the currency ultimately? How do you create the narrative you need to be able to pull that off? Because I'm I'm genuinely baffled as to how they might be able to do that. Yeah, I think the... It's going to depend on a lot,
2: right? Um, I think first and foremost, um, you know, we can't look at the United States as just any other country. Um, as much as a lot of people would like to, there's a difference between being the reserve currency and the exorbitant privilege that provides and not. Um, it doesn't seem fair, we shouldn't be able to, we can argue, you know, but we live in a, a world of realities, and um, if there is a uh you know big bully in a room he's not equal to the you know the the uh the 50 pound weakling right um there's a there's a difference um and and you know whether or not they have to worry about the bully has to worry about its debts or not is is uh it's another question it's a different thing um at the end of the day the federal reserve um can provide liquidity to the treasury um to whatever extent it wants at this point now we can argue that at some point that the outside systems are going to challenge that, which is what we're seeing, right? Uh, where you know there are entities that could uh, remove the exorbitant privilege, and that would be very, um, you know, that would bring things in line. But in the meantime, we have a fiat system where uh, you know the ten thousand pound gorilla in the room um, has control, and as long as they do. Um, this is a solvable problem uh, for the US. Now, that is a big if. Um, but I think they, at, at base, you know, you have to at least assume in the base case that that's the most likely scenario, in my opinion. Uh, other people would argue otherwise. Um, but I think uh, people tend to be bombastic and think about the biggest to worst possible outcome. I think the, the more likely outcome is the biggest economy in the world, the biggest military in the world, the place where rule of law is the strongest uh, and where most business interacts. Is likely to remain the most powerful, you know, as especially as long as there are alliances that help support it, um, uh, you know, uh, maintain that control because uh, you know, that that benefits the most number of, of of uh you know people in power. Um I know that's very cynical, but that's that's the world we live in. Um hey,
0: you're on the right podcast for that, my friend.
2: <laughs> Perfect. Uh yeah, no, I so so at the end of the day um you know if that's the case then yeah if 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 uh, interest rates go to 7% and the treasury has to you know our, our debt burden goes up but the fed is ultimately the one providing uh you know uh, liquidity at 7% and then collecting that 7% and giving it back to the treasury does it really matter it's just a closed loop right um and at the end of the day you know if you're if you if you can print money without consequence which sounds, you know, too good to be true. I know, but uh, but we've done it now for quite some time, and we're likely to be able to do it for some time more uh, until the you know uh, we lose the faith of the majority. Um, you know, of the world. Uh, we are a big enough player in that world that we still have an, an enough control. I say we. I, I, I don't necessarily uh, take the view that I am part of that, but I mean the United States, right, and the Western world broadly. Um, so. That is, uh that's that's the most likely outcome um, in my in my view Now a lot of tail things can happen there right if, if, if we are forced out of fiat uh, that uh, that changes things if we are um, in any way uh, truly uh, you know if the. US is truly challenged in a way that we are no longer no longer have the exorbitant privilege of, of the reserve currency um, uh, you know that changes things a bit. but until then I, I don't believe uh, that should. Um, ultimately affect the outcome, and I'm going to get a lot of hate, uh, te- you know, <laughs> mail on this one because because everybody, you know, this it, it's not a, a fair system to be clear. It has nothing to do with fairness, but it is it is the the politics of power.
1: Hey, we're talking about markets where we don't have to talk about equity. That's a that's a political thing. You know what I mean? Markets right. don't give a shit about that stuff. Absolutely. Um, uh, do you think that? I don't know if you saw Judy Sheldon's op-ed in the journal yesterday, but she pointed out that because of all the bonds that the Fed accumulated when they had NERP underway, the Treasury is going to need to advance them something on the order of a couple hundred billion dollars on an annualized rate. Mm -hmm. And obviously right now, that's not going to spark any interest. But I was wondering if we might not be too far away from, from a moment in time when folks might look at that and say, well, how can the Fed be independent with the, I mean, with the treasury having to give them enough money and then the Congress has got a chance to, to start yapping about that. Have you, have you thought they're, about that? Or they're not it independent.
2: Matters? They're not independent. I mean, there's a, they have to, they have to uh, create a, uh, you know, a narrative of independence for obvious reasons, but, but they are not independent. Uh, I had this conversation the other day with another fund manager that I'm close with, but um. You know, it's very interesting that, you know, listen, if... If, let's take an example, China is going to invade Taiwan, let's say. Let's just say that that happened, that, that, that we the US government now knows that, let's say. Um, they can't not communicate that to the Fed. That affects Federal Reserve policy dramatically. There's a constant line of communication between the two because the actions of the two and what they intelligence knows on one end really affects the outcomes for the other one. And that's always been the case. Um, you know, these are two sides of, of one coin that have to communicate. Now, to some level, there's some level of uh, you know when you're dealing in the minutiae of day to day, I'm sure there's some level of independence and um, but in terms of the bigger broad uh, policy uh, directions, uh, there has to be full communication between between the two. Um, I do find it interesting that that uh, that the Fed came out this last uh, at Opex on the Friday of uh, op- options expiration, which throughout history, anybody who's a student of markets and understands Fed policy announcements will know that Friday of OPEX is, is a, and this is not a conspiracy, this has happened throughout sure. history, the big announcement of of short, uh, you know, banning short uh, selling uh, in 2008 was the Friday of OPEX. They, there's a bunch of examples throughout history where they make big announcements uh, during that day. That came out, the pause slash pivot announcement from Nick Timrose came out right at OPEX after the AM print. And um, that that speaks to me that that the Fed had uh, has some reason for wanting right that announcement to be be had at a period of of um, of importance in the markets right they wanted market to communicate something to markets at a very important time so um, you know we'll, we can get into why that is or, or how that is but I think that's an interesting data point uh, and and I think it also speaks to some communication that's happening between the uh, the U S um, the government. You know, and, and, and whether it's the Treasury or, or broadly the government and, and the Federal Reserve as well.
0: Jim, um, going back to this idea of the cyclical and the structural. And again, you know, I'm, I'm very much in your camp that we now have a structural inflation problem, which will have various cyclical ups and downs within it. When we think about the end game, which is what we're trying to figure out in this podcast, what do you think the end game is for this kind of battle between structural and cyclical inflation? Something has to happen. We can't muddle along with things the way they are. We can't muddle along with double digit inflation and uh, massively negative real rates, particularly as that inflation is being felt in all the places where it hurts the most. So, when you think about the possible end game for that, how do you see that battle playing out?
2: If you look at assets and how they performed in the 1930s throughout the Great Depression in real terms, and you compare them to what happened in the uh, mid 60s through 70s, in real terms, I think the key there is in real terms, uh, the performance for assets was about the same. The world doesn't think about it that way, right? You think about the depression and what happened to asset values and and the deflation we had and just the pain, right? And then you think about the 60s and 70s, you're like, eh, markets went kind of nowhere for 14 years. That wasn't that bad. But they're the same, essentially, right? Uh, and, and one of them we dealt with uh, our our structure the we learned to deal with some of our structural problems via uh, inflation because if we do that and we create markets uh, moving nominally sideways as opposed to down seventy percent, which happens what happened in real terms, it's more gradual, it's less violent, uh, creates less knock on effects. Um, it's a deleveraging of a system, essentially. Uh, a monetization um and and so you know that's what we did in the 60s and 70s and it was actually a muddle through right i mean that was the intended effect it was to 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 get to, to get through um, you know some of the uh, overvaluations and rebalance some of the, the things that need to happen we're in need Right of a rebalancing. Right, we had dramatic monetary policy, drove uh, record uh, valuations in terms of a price to sales, record margins, uh, massive globalization, and malinvestment over a long period of time, and the compounding effects of that are huge. And uh, at some point, uh, you know, the, we we have to pay the piper, and and so uh, you know that has is being forced upon us because of inequality. Uh, People, it's always ultimately the end of that that game is ultimately a a political, you know, the thing that's that's uh, put upon the Fed and the system by by the people, and that's what we're that's what we're seeing globally, and that's why the populism story is so important. It's what's forcing the Fed's hand. It's what's forcing inflation, and ultimately, when that happens, um, you know, that rebalancing wants to be done and should be done in the most controlled way possible, but it has to happen. Because politically, it's kind of inevitable at this point. Um, and you can't address that uh, in a year or, or you know, a short period of time. So we're, we're likely to be in a period where uh, we are, uh, you know, assets are going to normalize via uh, demand push economy uh, uh, through, through a decade plus of growth and a decade plus of inflation. Um, which will normalize asset values, particularly GDP, will normalize margins. And, um, you know, it'll cause uh, uh, an unwind of globalization and and a time of geopolitical strife, much like the 30s, 40s, 60s, 70s, um, we will have uh, resource scarcity, and uh, you know, likely to have another OPEC crisis. That's not, you know, that's not a surprise that this it's happening at the same time. We're likely to have more war, much like we did uh, World War II and Vietnam War. Those are the other periods that correlated right with this. Those, these are times of of uh, you know geopolitical uh, uh, competition, and and so we're likely to get all that, and it's likely to be a time of a broad crisis and broad strife uh, and rebalancing. But the beauty of those types of periods is it ultimately drives, like I said, a rebalancing and a a period that'll allow for a a future boom and it'll also allow for crisis that'll help solve some problems and and force um, the resolution of some major, you know, kind of imbalances that have happened in other lines of of politics. We haven't had the ability for uh, our democracy and government broadly to uh, drive uh, change uh, for some time because we haven't had crisis because the Fed has been smoothing the business cycle. We haven't had you know the bar has been set so high for so long. Uh, you know uh, we haven't we haven't brought people together. Our government uh, was was made to to make passing laws very difficult. Right? Uh, they didn't want the corrosive power of money and power um, to affect the system. Lots of checks and balances, and very hard to pass laws. Well, you know if we haven't had crisis for forty years because the Fed keeps coming in and resolving the problems. Uh, we just haven't been able to pass laws and change uh, some of the structural problems we have. Well, here comes a crisis and and uh, here comes a broad need to uh, address those uh, issues. Um, and, and we're likely to come th- through it at the end uh, better off. Uh, you know, uh, system. So there's there is an end game, but that end game is ultimately, um, you know, it, it's going to feel bad for the next uh, period, but it, it will start the beginning of the next beginning game. Right? The, there will be a next a next beginning of a cycle, um, and uh, I think we're just entering a rebalancing period, which will be which will feel really bad, but but will ultimately be what we need to fix everything.
1: You brought up something that I think was an excellent point, and I wanted to ask you a question about it. Uh, you contrasted the depression with uh, how we exited the, the 60s, 70s, and and the net effect in real terms. The way I have described the tendency to m- go towards that outcome is because the fear of the depression is what keeps pushing us on the can kicking. When Bernanke, in particular, when we were in the middle of the 08 collapse, kept talking about deflation. What they really meant, I believe, was depression. And the idea of depression rightfully scares plenty of people. And so the way you characterized it almost made it sound like, well, the people in charge or the entities in charge, you know, saw what happened in the depression. They didn't want to do that. So they did what we got in the 70s. Obviously, I don't believe there's anyone government smart enough to pull all those maneuvers, especially when it takes place over several different administrations. So do you think the driving force is really sort of like the collective will of human nature that everyone kind of feels, oh, we don't want to go down that depression path. So that just kind of leads us to the other one. It's not like anyone's capable of pulling enough levers. It's sort of what society demands or 100 percent.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is not some conspiracy or there's people pulling the strings from the top. There are things that are collectively learned as a society and uh, certain things that, you know, uh, pain or, you know, some emotion that it's narrative to some extent. Right. Um, But but that that ultimately drives uh, you're always fighting yesterday's war, too. Right. Right. So There's always this. So that was fresh on people's mind from the last cycle and much like uh, there's a lot of talk about the 60s and 70s now right there's a there's a broad um you know that's that's the most uh, collectively uh, you know uh, important thing so we we drive a- away from those things and we try and make the the situation better um or less bad i guess um, and i think that's what happened in the 60s and 70s i wouldn't argue it's necessarily less bad it's just uh, in terms of the emotion and the sentiment and what uh, it was a muddle through in a bit, in a way. Um, even though, again, fourteen years—it was a years more popular, of, less bad. Yeah, and to be clear, it wasn't popular, right? But it was much less bad than the depression in in terms of. Uh, but again, to be clear, like in real terms, people lost seventy percent of their value the, of their money over the same period of time. Uh, you know, and, and very similar in real terms. So it—it's this old kind of shaving coins, right? It's uh, you kind of deceive. What's really happening to to um, to really make the public less uh, bothered by by what's actually going on, and and so that's a tale as old as time, um, and it, it it does work. It does work because you you know if you do it gradually and you do it in a way, people still won't like it, but you can kind of make it through a deleveraging process um you know by by you know not making the politics uh too painful and, and so you can steer your way through it yeah. so i think that's the most likely outcome again right i think i think you know we're likely to continue to get that that inflation um and and again it's not because powers that be are forcing it it's just it's the 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 most palatable outcome for the most number of
0: people Jim, there's one thread that runs through all of this, and that is your world of volatility. You know, we've been in a a very low vol, suppressed vol world for for a long, long time now. And the reawakening of volatility seems to have caught a few people by surprise. You know, guys like yourself and Chris Cole have been talking about the problems with suppressing volatility for quite some time now. So let's switch to your world, of the world of volatility. Talk a little bit about the changes we've seen in the world of vol, from the perspective of investors that don't really understand the changes happening underneath the surface. They understand the world is more complicated, but talk in a kind of as elegant a nuts and bolts way as you can as to how the volatility landscape has changed and what that means for the average investor.
1: And let me add one other element I'd like you to weave through there is I think if you took the average informed, but maybe not super experienced investor, they'd say, wow, anyone with a vol fund should have killed it this year. And that hasn't turned out to be the case. So maybe you could weave that through too, because I think people would absolutely. find that
2: fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things that interact in, in markets. One, there's uh, structural macro flows, right? What is, what is happening uh, what is what is feeding into the machine? What's what's feeding through the pipes, whether monetary or fiscal or earnings, right? How, how is money coming into the system and, and providing supply and demand for assets? And then you have positioning, right? Which is how are people positioning based on what they know the flows are and what does that mean for reflexive uh, you know, when they need to buy or sell based on how they are broadly positioned? When I say people, I mean institutions, I mean where is the money and, and how is it positioned? So Understanding that machine and how it works is is critical to understanding where we've been and where we're going. If you think about um, from the macro side, those big pipes that are flowing through, right? We are, as we mentioned, to kind of tie these two conversations together, we're transitioning from a period of massive liquidity coming in from one major pipe, which is monetary policy. So just a flood with unlimited liquidity, right? Um, That is volatility dampening because it's uh, when you have infinite liquidity, you have a put essentially Uh, any company can go borrow money uh, if they need, you know, most, not, maybe not any company, but most most companies can go borrow money uh, to to create liquidity, to get through bad periods. Um, You know, you have uh, you have a downside, uh, you have more money flowing to people. Uh, People can buy assets, right. Uh, Particularly um, investors. And, And so we, that that drives a period of uh, increasing asset values, uh, particularly stocks, uh, because uh, you have a TINA effect as well. You, you take out the bond market out; all more all the money has to flow in into stocks, into uh, you know into higher risk seeking assets. So we had that TINA effect. We had broad money flowing into the system. We had a put on businesses. We drove duration. We drove uh, technological advancement uh, through uh, you know both globalization as well as uh, you know. Uh, you know, investing more and more money in in stocks, which then could go out the risk curve. That's where we were. Now we're transitioning away from that, right, to fiscal fiscal policy and higher rates. And so all of these things are unwinding at once. You're removing liquidity from stocks. You're removing uh, liquidity from assets broadly. You're you're increasing interest rates. So money's flowing from stocks to bonds, right, um, as well. And this is creating multiple contraction, right, Uh, in in equities. This is what we've seen in in the 60s and 70s as well. Um, It it doesn't necessarily mean uh, companies will grow less uh, on on a cash flow basis, right? Uh, Actually, demand-side economy might actually make make that side better. But what it means is investment, money for investments coming off. That creates less liquidity, it removes the put from businesses. And when you have less liquidity in the system, volatility increases, right? Uh, because uh, there's less money to support the downside in markets. Um, and there's more room for uh, mal- liquidation of malinvestment, Etc. So, from a 30,000 foot view, it makes sense that volatility would increase. And on top of that, this comes at the tail of 40 years of monetary policy, which means what? That means there's a lot of leverage in the system. Uh, corporate debt levels were about 30%. We're now at 50%, right? That's a dramatic difference. So, there's just a lot more leverage in the system. I've called it a sumo market, right? We've gone from this Uh, these two skinny wrestlers pushing on each other in a uh, a system to over the last 40 years, bigger and bigger wrestlers. And and, and they were still balanced for quite some time when there was enough liquidity, it didn't really matter. But the amount of size of each side and the potential energy that sat between them was bigger. Um, That means the slightest little slip or change in the system, right, can cause big moves because there's a lot of potential energy, a lot of leverage in the system. And I talked about this before the decline in markets recently. What that creates in terms of a distribution of outcomes structurally is fat tails, right? The the tail of a of a really bad outcome is is way bigger, right, in a system. Like that, um, and there's mul- many dimensions, right? There's many countries, there's FX, there's bonds, there's you know. When we talk about vol, it's not just equity vol, right? Just broadly, there's just leverage in the system means you're going to get more and more leptocurtic outcomes. I said about a year ago, hey, expect more. The largest ever, like though you're going to start hearing that word. That this was the largest ever, or the fastest ever, or and sure enough, every month or so, there's a new thing. This was the 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 lowest volatility into a decline ever, or this, you know, the the highest, you know um uh, that that leptocritic outcome applies for not just uh tails of, of equity markets and markets probably but of all kinds of outcomes because you just have so much leverage in the system so that energy has to go somewhere that leverage and and, and tail has to go somewhere so that's from my macro system right now we go to the second piece right and this is more to talk to to you know uh, flex uh question about how has this affected the recent the recent uh, outcomes as you mentioned uh Vol has been historically compressed and SKU is in the zeroth percentile in equity vol. Um, the
1: average person, would you give them like just a thumbnail sketch of what you mean when me you say that? I know what you mean, but...
2: Yeah, so most people think when they think vol, they think about the VIX, right? Uh, VIX is because uh, people are used to saying you either buy an asset or you sell an asset. Vol is a bit more complicated, right? Uh, without getting too complex, like the VIX is a summary of of all of the implied volatilities, the options, where the options are priced, the implied option uh Volatility of all the options uh, that are averaged at 30 days, right? One month out. That's what the VIX is. But it's a that is a dis, those options all have different implied volatilities. Downside options have a very different op, uh, you know, a different implied volatility than upside options. At Different expirations, you have different implied volatilities. And what skew is is those downside options versus upside. So when I say skew is in the zero percentile, what I mean is equity implied volatility of a uh, one standard deviation put is uh is flatter relative to a one standard deviation call right than it's ever been um and and why is that the case basically uh upside volatility has become in a realized basis is more equal to downside volatility uh, that's part of it but there's a reflexive loop in that People were hedged for this decline. We had that same skew at the record high at the hundredth percentile before the decline. That's not a coincidence. Everybody was hedged, and specifically hedged in the equity option.
1: And for world. Pers- and per- for perspective, it's pretty rare that we go into a bad
2: period like that, is it not? Skew is often high at the top, so I, I don't want to say skew is, uh, is is rare that that's the case. But this was relatively well communicated that the Fed was going to be raising right. rates. Uh, we knew about the, you know, some of the issues that, you know, uh, broadly that, that were on the horizon. Um, and so there was a lot of hedging and it was higher than, than most times into a decline. We've seen other times like uh, late 2018, uh, October, November, December 18. Uh, you know, we had a similar thing and, and implied volatility declined similarly. Feb. Sixteen, we had a similar outcome after the August 15 yuan devaluation where people were very well hedged into a decline and we saw these. But this is the longest and um, you know, options have become bigger too, right? Uh, like a uh, bigger part of the liquidity and that that is actually very important. So not only were people prepared but the, the size of the options market, the amount of hedging relative to the equity market and the reflexive effects are, are bigger than ever. Now it's important to note that that happened primarily on the equity index level, right? People were overwhelmingly going to where the liquidity was and where it's easiest to hedge, which is equity index fall. that's critical to understand because we haven't had dramatic ball compression across the market. we haven't dampened really fully this macro volatility when it comes to the big picture, right this le- the, that sumo market is still uh, there underneath the hood. We're just seeing that that volatility in places where there w- people weren't as hedged, which was an interest rate ball. Right, which was an FX vol, right? Places where there's less liquidity and people were less positioned, and we've seen that that vol go secularly higher, dramatically so. And we called for that about a year ago as well. That that was probably a better place to be ultimately hedged. Single list vol dispersion this year has worked incredibly well. When I say dispersion, single list equity vol relative to where the index itself volatility, you know, that implied correlation. For a time of volatility, usually when you have a big de- decline in markets, correlation tends to go to one or to be to be more in line. What we've seen is actually the opposite. And this has been a function of that same reflexive reality. People were hedged in the indexes. So the index itself has been very controlled into this decline and reflect. There's been put supply onto the market on the index level as the market's gone down and dampening of realized ball as, as a as a result. Meanwhile, single lists have still flown around. We've seen a massive rotation, right? We value growth, you have parts of the market that are down 75% and you have parts of the market that are, um, you know, uh, flat, right? Um, and and so, you know, also in emerging markets, right? You have uh, part of certain emerging markets like China and other places which are down 75%. Uh, whereas you have some markets that are only down 20. Um, so these big rotations that are fairly historic in different parts of the market, not just equities, but but in bonds and in FX and other, you know, commodities, other parts of the market where there's less hedges, that true kind of sumo potential energy, that leptocurtic tail has been there. And we are seeing the knock-on effects of it. It's just where people were hedged the most. Uh, are, are, you know, that, that option market has reflexively been pinning that. And that's been kind of the cork in the, in the dam, right? Like there's, there's that, that, the Danish boy, you know, that Dutch boy, sorry, with his finger in the, in the dike, you know, uh, and that, that's S and P 500 ball. Right now. Now the problem is that guy's been sitting with his hand in the, in the dike for, for about a year and a half. Right. Um, He's getting a little tired uh, and, and uh, you know, nobody's really appreciating his value. Nobody's been been paying him. Right. He he's, he's hungry and he's, uh yeah. I think I'll stop with the metaphor there. <laughs> but but basically people have lost money in, in long vol. People are liquidating their positions in vol because it hasn't worked. They're finding other places. They're going into into interest rate vol and FX vol. They're they're going into single list vol. They're they're saying, well, i I made a mistake here. I didn't know any better. You know, this this year I, I thought, you know, if the market's down 25%, I should have been up. You know, twenty five percent plus in this, these vol trades to offset my losses, and instead I'm down twenty percent. It made things worse. You know, I'm not doing that again, right? And and so they're liquidating and they're moving out of those hedges, and reflexively that has other knock on effects. So these things are cycles. I have this before, but I you know, August 15 was a vol event that yuan evaluation. Feb 16 was vol compression event into a decline. Uh, vol apocalypse Feb 18 was a massive vol event followed by late 18 was a massive vol compression event. Uh, you know, March, 2020 was a massive vol event, event right? It, it, it followed by what we've seen recently, a massive vol compression event. So these things work in cycles um, and they're a function of, of that people rushing into trades and then being overlevered in a trade and then rushing out to the other trade and then, you know, going the other way. So, you know, we're setting ourselves up for an opportunity, uh, not opportunity, a massive vol that uh, now the scary part is now you know this this is that guy that you know that that Dutch boy with his finger in, in the you know in, in the dike there is um you know he's really he's been holding back what's otherwise a very big macro kind of set of flows and a leptokurtic distribution and so this is not just like you know uh, late 2018 or early 16 right? If that, if that dam gets overwhelmed, there, there is no other place for liquidity. That is the spot for ultimate liquidity. So um, I would argue you know, there's a likely second leg down. And that second leg down is going to be, um, you know, given how leptocurtic the actual underlying distribution likely is due to macro flows, um, potentially very dangerous for the whole system. So
1: how uh, do we get from, given where we are now, to the moment where we have the next leg down? What has to burn off or change? Uh, Based on what you've written, which I've seen, but maybe some people that are listening to this have not, obviously we've got not just the FOMC meetings, we've got an election, then we've got year-end, and there are people get positioned for those sorts of things. So as we travel through those, how do we get to the nasty part that might be
2: lurking out there? Yeah, so um now we talk about path and path is a bit more complicated we we have some some ideas right based on history and based on positioning and based on uh you know pressures and incentives right that's the, the best way to predict um that said along the way right the further out you go in time the more that path uh, changes the more it's, it's harder to predict but given where we're sitting now, uh, the things I feel like uh, we know the best is that, listen, the skews at the zero percentile, people are hedging a lot less in equity in the equity vol space. Um, short interest is, is relatively high, right? Um, so people are uh, have, have uh, either delevered on the equity side as a result of the not- hedges not working, right? Um, or gone broadly short. Um, and so there, there is, at least on the institutional side, a less levered um, uh, piece on the equity side itself. So I think that has been uh, the one thing that has uh, dampened uh, the volatility recently, and that's the last thing to kind of if you if this market forces people back in into the next rally, which is I think what we're in the process of seeing, and 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 creates um, you know a higher level of, of you know it doesn't have to be. Uh, as high as it was, uh, you know, a year ago, but more investment broadly enforces entities back in. I think the tail now is less hedged, and so we we sit in a much more dangerous position. Once the higher we go in markets, and the more people get forced in, so um, there is a period here where we're um, where we're seeing, um, you know, some type of uh, counter trend move. I've been pretty vocal that that the more uh, you the fed talks about pause and pivot and people start getting back into okay this is over and this is a cyclical kind of a oh we're going into recession and the fed is going to stop okay uh, back on the same train the more you get that psychology coming which i think is is in root right we're kind of seeing it now um the more likely that kind of pause pivot uh is is uh, and, and that that market kind of uh, seemingly breaking back up to the upside is is likely to turn into a, a nasty vol event to the downside. You have um you have realized, you know, the you're creating greater realized vol potential the higher you go in markets, right? Um, I think that's important to note. Uh, uh so um, I would argue that the higher you go, the, the more vol should be uh going higher. And so I, I think there's an opportunity here if you're a trader to be really uh expressing kind of uh the the coming. The coming opportunity with with upside calls, especially longer dated, vol is getting to a relatively reasonable level now. Um, you know, I think uh, there's a, a likely uh, chance that we'll get some type of counter, continued counter trend rally here into the end of the year. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've written about seasonality and how seasonality most people talk about it just like on a graph, right? And I think about it as a magical construct seasonality for us is a very real mathematical thing, um, not just because of what's happened in history, but because of just a function of measuring supply and demand. There's less liquidity during these periods and there's greater VANA and charm flows. I don't know how much I, we want to dive into VANA and charm, but there's a greater daily decay of uh, option premium and risk premium that happens because time is shorter. There's just more holidays and there's less volume. So there's less activity in markets. And so that those, those flows have a greater impact during, during this period. Um, uh, you know, other periods of, of long holidays also see positive seasonality. This is what drives the adage, you've probably heard it, never short a dull market. Never short a dull market. These adages, people think they're just magical constructs. Nobody understands why. These are the things that drive these, um, these trends. Um, and so um, never short a dull market. Uh, volume is low, time passes quicker because you just have more holidays. And so we're likely to see during the coming period a positive uh, you, know, uh, you know, end of year push given short interest as well. That's going to probably make things worse. Uh, and then there's another added element here, which we know, which is NOV 2nd is the Fed. no 4th is unemployment. November 8th is the election. November 10th is CPI. You have this clustering of coming up very, very, very soon here uh, of major fall potential Events And so the market has a high implied vol priced for those events. Um, Much like we've talked about this before with with Brexit, with uh, the 2016 uh, Trump election, the 2020 contested election, all three of these things priced a really high, what we call event vol for, for these specific events. And those event balls, ultimately, uh, if you think about all three of those events, the, what was perceived, at least, as the worst-case outcome, you know, Britain actually doing going through Brexit, Trump actually being elected, actually having a contested election in 2020, all of them actually occurred. What the market was scared about actually happened, and all of them resolved with major upside moves in the market. And everybody, each time, scratches their head and says, "Why? That's weird. I, you know, we, we're hedging for this event, that happen. happened, and, and then the opposite happened in markets. But that's not a coincidence. That's how markets work because, they reflexively, people were hedged for that. So the dealers are short those puts and short stock, and the bar is very high for how big that move needs to be to the downside to create some type of issue. And when that doesn't occur, there's massive buyback by dealers to lock in uh, that stock and that that trade. So again, reflexivity at work in, in markets. We have an event vol coming up uh, across this period, and so we're likely to continue to. See See these Vana and charm flows work even greater through that period of time here in November. And then which takes us towards kind of the holidays uh, app behind that uh, and and likely uh, kind of more vol compression in the back end. So um you know, broadly, I think that's part of what this market's been front running a bit here, uh, you know, along with that kind of pause pivot narrative from the Fed, which they're getting support from. So it makes sense for this market uh, during this uh, this window to really have support um, to to squeeze the shorts a bit. Um, and I think that's what you're seeing in price action, which which people are seeing technically and otherwise, um, you know, people who get it are kind of seeing this uh, playing out in front of them and trying to cover shorts or get long in front of it. Um, so so odds are that that's what we see. and that ultimately then leads to something uh, either in December or probably more likely January, February, right into the new year where, where things uh, could get a little bit more dangerous but again that the the dutch boy is is tired he's hungry he wants to go home and uh and it just takes uh you know tempting him away from the from the dike uh with with with, uh you know with with some some uh some good dutch cookies um and this market is uh the market's gonna give give him that uh as the market goes higher here i think uh, and get him get him going home and when he does uh the whole the whole thing's likely to kind of get kind of ugly
1: I just love that mental image of the, the yeah, Dutch poet's <laughs> figure in the
0: dike. I, I think they'll be tempting him with some of Amsterdam's finest instead of cookies.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's other things there besides cookies. Uh, right. Does the fact, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, does the fact that the option world, for lack of a better name, has become so much bigger relative to the underlying or, uh, in the last group of years, does that... Add even more into the how the sort of tail wags the dog, for lack of a better way of saying it.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, the 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 amount it's it's pretty straightforward math. The amount of uh, options net positioning there is that uh, dealers are warehousing, um, ultimately uh, is is the uh, creates the amount of buyback in the underlying equity that needs to be you know pushed through on a daily basis now. To be clear, more volume doesn't mean more positioning. It's not one-to-one. So you could have a lot of volume, but more mixed muddied uh, positioning. And so the net effect maybe in that scenario would be less uh, than maybe a situation where you have less volume, but it's all very one-sided. So um, that said, when positioning does get big, and there's more volume there's more potential energy so it's it's uh, and i think that's important to note. um so understanding this connection between the options world which is now often notionally traded more than underlying stocks pretty you know hard to think you know understanding that those those decay effects and that net positioning effect are more and more critical to understanding the underlying uh, option you you and i have disagreed with this uh, on times uh fleck but but uh, you know i i would argue that we're moving to a world uh where options are more and more the underlying, right? They are the the ultimate uh, asset and stocks are just a summary of those assets. Uh, but uh, we don't have to necessarily go down that path today.
1: No, no, we don't, we don't really disagree about it. I was more like I was shocked to discover that. Yeah. So uh, that brings up a good question. I think people listening might like to know is when approximately do you feel like it, we sort of switched where the option market became bigger in terms of volume, sort of like it is now and, and a much bigger piece of the puzzle? Approximately.
2: So I've been in these markets for about 25 years. I'm dating myself a bit, but uh, and it's been a secular transition, right? Like we've been moving to greater and greater volumes, more and more activity, more products, more education, more access uh, over 25 years. And, and that's led to secularly higher volumes and more uh, effects. Now, to your point, though, there does we do seem to be hitting a bit of a tipping point. So it's not just a gradual move. I think of options as a technology, right? Most people think of it as just another asset. Oh, it's an asset class. Think of it as a technology. It's it's a superior product. It's a superior way to express uh, an outcome. Uh, you don't just express it in two dimensions. You can express it in uh, three, four, five dimensions even. Uh, I can bet on on time to expiration, moneyness, right? Uh, Different assets on a relative implied vol, uh, you know, uh, on a skew basis. You can really uh, manage um, any asset, right? Uh, The the exposure you want to any asset much more dynamically and flexibly. Now, we have in a world where we have a... uh, you know, a factor and style ETF, a two-dimensional exposure to any cross-section of every part of the market. And we've been completely quantified. To me, it's almost... Those things are silly because I can express those much more specifically with the flexibility of options. So this has always been the case in my mind. And those who get it have kind of broadly used these products accordingly. The problem is, is it's Kind of complicated for your average person. But tech, guess what? Technology is complicated. Building software is complicated. Not everybody who uses software understands the software underneath, you know, the, the code underneath it. That's not what's really important. What you need is network effects. You need bigger, more infrastructure, more simplification of the process, education. Right, you need uh, more access, uh, and that's what we're getting. That's what would happen with Robinhood and other these other platforms. That's what's happened with the, the uh, development of nanos and more daily expirations and more different. Li- that's created created more liquidity. Uh, you know, people like myself are educating on the topic. Other people are educating on the topic. You have tasty trade. You have all these things. All of these things lead to more volume, which begets more people coming into the system because there's opportunities. And that creates these network effects that eventually drive more volume and more more participation, and so that's where we are. I believe this is more of a technology. We're hitting a tipping point where there's more of that. There's more uh, more volume begets more volume, more knowledge begets more knowledge, more you know access begets more access. It's it's all happening, and kind of we're hitting this tipping point. COVID played a role in it. I think important you know with people being at home and and trading more and and the fiscal. Policy where people getting checks in their pockets and needing to invest played into it, um, but importantly, I think in the next decade, what in my view is going to be a much more, you know, much less secular uh, bull market and much more kind of choppy inflation like period is also likely to play into that trend, because people will need to bet more in non-linear ways on non-correlated outcomes. Um, and so as that happens, the need for a less just up down kind of investment versus something that's much more flexible and uh, multidimensional, more powerful. So my view is that we're actually in the beginning of a secular bull trend for options uh, and volume. And I think we've really hit a bit of a tipping point. Um, and, and I think that's likely to uh, accelerate. I think we look back in 15 years, uh, we can reference this pod when that happens. And you see even higher options volume, and you start to people start to scratch their head. Everybody is is at that point expressing direction
0: much more with uh, underlying options than they are with stocks. Jim, let me let me ask you a follow up to that It's fascinating hearing you talk about this stuff because we've we've had a period in the last couple of years where there has been this surge into uh, option trading, but but it certainly seems um, at face value to be an awful lot of inexperienced money that doesn't really understand. What they're doing, but obviously it's been a one-way train, and so it's kind of been a, a self-reinforcing loop. Are you seeing experienced investors change the way they approach investing in volatility? Because you know m- many of my friends have kind of been wringing their hands in the vol space for quite some amount of time because there's been this lack of understanding, even on the part of sophisticated investors, that you pay this like an insurance premium. We've all heard the analogies, right? But it doesn't perform until you need it to. And I wonder, given the amount of unsophisticated money that's poured into the options market in the last couple of years, but obviously can lose 100% of that money, what's the the mood and the change in methodology amongst the sophisticated investor class? Is volatility becoming a more acceptable short-term asset class for sophisticated money? I'm going to push back a little bit uh, sure.
2: in, in this term, sophisticated investor you look at the majority of assets managed out there in the world, most of it's incredibly unsophisticated. So the people we would broadly call sophisticated investors have gathered assets by doing an approach which was supported by the Fed for 40 years of of stocks and bonds. Um, 60-40, right? Um, That is probably not because of they haven't won because of sophistication they haven't they haven't your, your average wealth advisor you know and in this approach that they've been dictating to, to the majority of investors uh, on an individual level same thing they have found a way that's easy or that was easy that was low cost so they didn't have to provide alpha um, in any way any real edge um, to get to gather more and more assets and to create more fees so if that's the group we're talking about in terms of the sophisticated investors, um, uh, yeah, that, I think they're waking up to the fact that that their system is no longer gonna work and they better find a new system. Passive investment, people think was like a new, it was a new thing, it's a new technology. We came up with this wonderful new idea that you can just put money in and dollar cost average into a passive investment and go to sleep at night, just, and everything works out. The reason it became the end-all be-all for all RIAs and Vanguard became what they are is because of the Fed. Before 1982, as we talked about for 14, 15 years, the market went nowhere and lost 70% of the value in real terms. That was the time for active investment. Active investment was all there was. No, there was Being invested in a passive investment during that period would have been insane. It's not like passive didn't exist before because nobody thought of it. It just didn't work um and so we've broadly been in a period which you know 40 years seems like forever but we've been in a period where the fed was dominant and they drove uh you know uh, the success of both stocks and bonds as a as a you know a, a, a investment process that worked together and it was easy uh, you know it was a free lunch that is not how it works in a system where the fed is not um, in control, um, and this is why active management is having such a great year, great couple years, um, and why active management is likely to have a a secular bull market. And that and part of that active management now time that is is being, and the word active that means you are flexible, and you are able to allocate more specifically to different trends and opportunities, and to create edge. And in that type of an active management, those active managers do very actively use options. And those entities are broadly hedge funds and sophisticated, truly sophisticated investors. Now, that's not the majority of the money out there yet, to be clear. Sure. But those entities who are doing very well uh, in this environment, uh, just take a look at Citadel's returns for the last year. There's plenty of other entities you can look at, at as well, um, are overwhelmingly using options to express things because it is a more sophisticated, better outcome. But the the um the sophisticated dumb money, which is the majority of money, um, is not yet. And and they are waking up to the fact that they need to learn. Um and that's part of what's also driving kind of this bull trend in education and access and and products and and increased volumes. I'd like
1: to amplify a point that you made. I think it's really important. I have the gray hair to prove it. So I've been doing this for over 40 years. And I can share with you in real time in the early 80s and and for maybe probably through halfway through the decade, if you were in the money management business, which I was, the people that had the big reputations and had a lot of the assets and were the go-to guys, so to speak, they called it market timing back then. And the shop that I was in, we believed that there was going to be a secular change which turned out to be correct, parenthetically. And we would, we we're advocating we're going to see more of a return to buy and hold. And through this period you just talked about, what's worked better than anything is, you know, buy and forget and don't buy and hold. What you're suggesting, I believe, is and when you say active management, we're at a moment in time where I think people have kind of given up on active management and you're showing how that may have a renaissance. And the reason I want to amplify this is because. I think it will put a wind in a lot of people's sails if they think, "Hey, working hard and thinking about this, I might get an edge again where it hasn't really done much for you." And so um, you you hit on something from a different perspective of something I've been kind of working on in my own mind. So I wanted to just kind of
2: amplify it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think uh, that that edge not only is increasing, um, but I think the uh, the value of that edge is increasing right? Um, it, it's if you create 5% uh, above whatever the Fed funds rate is, uh, you know, uh, or 4% of alpha or 3%, whatever that number is, nobody's cared when interest rates are zero, if you can create 3% extra edge, really, right? right. Um, it, it just, right. Uh, if the market's returning 15% a year, and your fees, I can get do it at 05 percent fees as opposed to 2% fees, which is, it's expensive to create edge. You, you know, if it was easy, there wouldn't be an edge. Um, so, but uh, you know, we went, we went to a place where everybody just argued about, Hey, what are your expense ratios? What are your, you know, how much uh, is it, is it costing you to do this? Um, uh, because it was easy to make 15% a year. Well, guess what? When the market's going sideways to negative in the real terms, and um, all of a sudden that 3% alpha you can put on top of, You know, uh, a four and a half, five percent, you know, uh, treasury, right? Um, Looks pretty, pretty appealing, Um, and that that value of that edge is is more valuable, and people appreciate the value of that edge.
0: Well, Chem, it's been a it's been a fascinating. Geez, we've gone way over the hour, so I really appreciate this. I'm so glad we finally got the chance to have this conversation. It's been, as I say, we've been dancing around for such a long time now. So, you know, on behalf of both of us, thank you so much for taking this time. It's been fascinating and educational on equal measure. But before we go, let the people out there who you may be new to know how they can follow you, because the stuff you put out is is always fantastic. So just let them know how they can do that.
2: No, I appreciate that. I always enjoy our conversations offline as well as on, so hope to continue the conversations. Um, uh I run a, a set of three funds uh, at kaivol volatility.com non-correlated uh we have long vol uh kind of a vol neutral uh, relative value uh, and a multi-strategy product um, chi volatility.com is our website you can reach out to me our team there um, and uh, we also write kind of uh, quarterly thought pieces uh you can subscribe to kind of our thoughts and our videos and and, and kind of what our current thoughts are uh via that that uh, uh, website as well um Lastly, uh, on Twitter, uh, at jam underscore croissant. That's a play on my name. Uh, check me out there. I, I'm a little bit less active than I used to be, as, as flight mentions, but definitely still put some nice nuggets out there, some nice croissant crumbs every once you, in a while. You need, so. to put,
1: you need to put together a thesaurus. For all the little <laughs> right, emojis right. you
2: use, so people can well, figure it's, out you know, it's, what it's, the hell you're the,
1: talking about. As part of the fun,
2: <laughs> it's it's a club now, right? We have a hundred thousand followers or so. Is that if right, You is were that? there from the beginning. <laughs> you speak the language. Otherwise, you you gotta you gotta you know pay your dues. But no, we we love putting um it you can know, be valuable like a Christmas gift for people. You know, here's the thesaurus of emojis. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is, uh, we try and clarify on on podcasts like this, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a push and pull. I think you got to keep it interesting. Wonderful being here guys. And, and thank you for having me. Thanks again, right, right, buddy. Thanks Take for care.
0: Joining us. Take care. Well, Fleck, I, I, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, I, I think you're right. The, the, the emoji Esperanto is, uh, is, is a fascinating language to try, to try and learn.
1: <laughs> well, I think we are fortunate that we um, caught him at this specific moment in time, because you know, it's in- interesting to be able to parse the intersection of the micro world that he lives in and, and the macro view, which sort of dovetails in with some of the other topics we've had. So I think we're we are quite fortunate to uh, have this conversation like right now, now-ish, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, particularly with, you know, these eight days coming up, as he, as he pointed out so well, you know, with Fed and midterms and CPI prints and stuff, there's an awful lot going on in the next 10 days that, that are definitely going to, it's not going to be plain sailing, right? The markets are not going to just kind of glide through all this. There's going to be pivot talk and then not pivot talk and then, you know, fed-in-a-box type stuff. And who knows which way it'll go. But look, and I think this comes and back to... And then there's
1: the small matter of the election mixed in there as well.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I thought I, was, I mentioned midterms. But, yeah, that's that's right in the middle of it all. But Oh, um, oh you might you know what? You said midterms. I said elections. Sorry. Ah, hey, <laughs> I'm English. I'm talking a different language. We, we have an election every week in England now, it seems. But... um. <laughs> but you know, I, I think the one thing that I just keep hearing over and over again, not just with Jen, but with other people, is change. As we know, humans don't necessarily adapt well to yeah. change. So these conversations are hugely helpful, I think, in, in at least trying to prepare people for the fact that change is coming.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's it's very helpful for me as well. And, and uh, the more that you get stimulated to see other outcomes, you can start to, plan for what will i do if it starts to play that way or what if i do if it plays this way you have to be live because there's so many big and important and wild variables out there there's a myriad of ways this can sort out going forward and if you're not at least live to to the possibility as they play out you you know it's going to cost you a bunch of money
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, mate, it's been another fun, fun, fun conversation. And um, that's that's four really interesting and very different ones all in a row. But but again, that theme had changed. So thanks to you, matey, for uh, for doing this. Thanks to you out there for listening to us, as always. Uh, if you don't follow us on Twitter, you can do that very easily. You'll find me at ttmygh. And I'm at flatcap. He's still there. And we'll be back with another endgame in the not-too-distant future. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>